Good morning. You guys doing all right? Awesome. We are studying the Old Testament book of Exodus this fall, just as a way to learn more about the God whom we claim to worship and to learn more about how we live our lives as the people of God in today's world. You know, the Exodus is actually like the defining event of God's people until the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the most quoted, it's the most referred to event in all of the scriptures. In Exodus, God actually really makes himself known and shows humans what it's like to live as his people on our planet, and these are all things we desperately need to learn to apply to our lives today. The story of the people in Exodus is actually meant to become our story. It's a story that you and I are invited into, uh, our lives intertwining with God's story. My goal uh, this fall is that Exodus becomes your story way more than it ever has before. So today we're in chapter two. Last week we looked at chapter one. And as we read this chapter today, I wanna pause for a minute and think about what kind of thing are we reading? What kind of literature are we reading here? You intuitively realize, of course, that there are all different kinds of literature, right? You don't read poetry or prose or a textbook or a a, a psychological or a science journal or a song lyric or a text from a friend in the same way. You read all those different types of literature differently. And so what I want to do is there's another short little video from our friends at the Bible Project that I want you to watch that talks about the kind of literature, meditational literature, that we're reading in the book of Exodus. So let's play that little video. So the Bible is a collection of books written in different literary styles like narrative, poetry, and prose. And most of us are familiar with these kinds of literature. Yeah, we all know a narrative when we see one, like The Hunger Games or The Great Gatsby. And most people can recognize poetry, whether it's Walt Whitman or the songs of Bob Dylan. And every day we're surrounded by prose and news articles or essays. Now all of these examples are modern American literature in that they came from this time period and this region of the world. But there's also medieval English literature from another place in time, or ancient Greek writings from this place in time. So each time period and culture produces its own unique kind of literature. And in order to read the Bible well, we need to keep in mind that it comes from this part of the world and was produced in this basic period of time. So what's unique about ancient Jewish literature? Well, a key feature is that it lacks a lot of the details that modern readers have come to expect in stories and poems. And this makes it seem really simple. But actually, it's very sophisticated literature. Every detail that is given matters. And that's great, but the lack of detail means that stories are often loaded with ambiguities. I mean, take one of the first stories, Adam and Eve in the Garden. Where did this talking snake come from? And why did God allow him there? Why didn't Adam and Eve die on the spot like God said they would? And who's this offspring of the woman who will destroy the snake but is bitten by it? Yeah, so many puzzles in this story. And some of these are questions that we have and that are not important to what the author is focusing on. But some of these ambiguities are in Intentional. Intentional? Won't that lead to bad interpretations, people filling in the gaps with their own answers? Well, that's a risk the biblical authors took in writing this way. We all tend to impose our own cultural assumptions onto the Bible, but they apparently thought the risk was worth it. 
These oddities are really invitations into an adventure of reading and discovery. What do you mean? Well, for example, the strange promise about the offspring of the woman crushing and being bitten by the snake. That word offspring is a clue to pay attention to genealogies, which, lo and behold, run all through the biblical narrative. They trace the lineage from Eve all the way to King David and his offspring. And in the New Testament, Jesus is connected to the offspring of this royal line. Now, when you read the prophets, Isaiah connected this king to the suffering servant who would die on behalf of his people. And then, in the book of Revelation, there's this symbolic vision. And can you guess? It's about a woman and her offspring. It's Jesus and his followers who conquer the dragon by giving up their lives. Yeah, so each part of the story there is loaded with ambiguities, but altogether, it makes sense. And this is the literary genius of the Bible. It forces you to keep reading and then interpret each part in light of the others. This is feeling complicated. I don't know if I can do all that. Well, you're actually not expected to notice all of this by yourself or all at once. This dense way of writing forces you to slow down and then read carefully, embarking on this interactive discovery process through the whole biblical narrative over a lifetime of reading and rereading. Ah, okay. Meditation literature. Yeah, in Psalm 1, we read about the ideal Bible reader. It's someone who meditates on the scriptures day and night. In Hebrew, the word meditate means literally to mutter or speak quietly. The idea is that every day for the rest of your life, you slowly, quietly read the Bible out loud to yourself. And then go talk about it with your friends, pondering the puzzles, making connections, and discovering what it all means. And as you let the Bible interpret itself, something remarkable happens. The Bible starts to read you. Because ultimately, the writers of the Bible want you to adopt this story as your story. So this ancient Jewish writing style, it must create unique types of narrative and poetry and discourse. Yes, and we'll explore all of those literary styles starting next with biblical narrative. Woo, there's a lot in that video. Uh, you probably weren't able to get it all on your first watch. I know I wasn't. I would go back and press into some of the videos that they have there, as well as their podcasts and other kinds of things. If you want to learn more about the scripture, it's actually an excellent resource. Uh, Their app is brilliant. All right, with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to read Exodus chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Exodus chapter 2, we're on page 39, it looks like, and the Bible's in the rack of the chair there. And uh, let me pray before I read this. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible grace that you extend to us as you reveal yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. And Lord, I ask that you would allow us to hear your voice to see who you are. Would you even challenge our perceptions of what we think you should be as we read through this. As we read the scriptures, God, would you allow the scriptures to read us as they just talked about? And would you be on our time together? Would you put power on this talk? In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, Exodus chapter two, you guys with me? Starting in verse one, it reads like this. Now a man from the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son When they saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the, placed the child in it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. 
His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. If you remember chapter one, there was an edict went out from Pharaoh to kill all the uh, um, male babies. So she's hiding him. Verse five, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Uh, the girl went and got the, let me, where am I at here? Oh, I, I lost my place. The girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Verse 11, one day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, uh, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Or more literally, God understood or God knew. Here's what I want to do. I want to make, that's an incredibly kind of popular story that we've seen in all sorts of movies and uh, different cartoons and all sorts of stuff. There's a few observations. Uh, we don't have time to unpack everything from this, but there's a few observations for our life today that I think are really, really helpful. And, and the first one is this. We are part of a much bigger story than we ever imagined possible. The writer of Exodus is leaving all sorts of literary clues to remind us that we're part of a much bigger story. Remember, the book of Exodus starts like this, very simply, and these were the names. It starts with the word and. I highlighted that last week. It's like it's a continuation of everything that had gone on before in Genesis. 
Here's another thought. Uh, We're used to the verse and chapter divisions, so we think of the Bible oftentimes as uh, broken up into small bits of information, verses. But the scriptures weren't written that way. Those helpful, I think they're very helpful divisions, came along much later in the process. And so the early writers used other ways to organize their thoughts and to highlight or to differentiate different parts of the text. And so throughout this series, one of the things that we're going to do is draw your attention to repeating themes and patterns to watch for, key thoughts that keep reappearing. And each time these repetitive patterns come forward, uh, they're to remind us of like who you're coming before, who God is, and what he's doing, you know, and, 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 and to remind you what's going on. So Moses' birth is just one example of a common Old Testament theme. At various junctures, uh, a child is actually instrumental to God's plan of delivering his people from a dire situation. It points to the future. It points to the incarnation. As Mary, the mother of Jesus, recognizes that's exactly how God works in our lives. When angel Gabriel comes to Mary, Christmas isn't that far off. It's time to start shopping. Uh, When Gabriel comes to Mary, Mary recognizes, oh, this is what God's always done. This is how he works. I remember the story of Moses. See, recognizing how God's worked in the past helps us to say yes to what he's inviting us into today. Why is it helpful to read through something like this and study it? Because recognizing how God has always worked is incredibly beneficial if you want to say yes to him today in what he's doing in your life. The writer of Hebrews says that he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means we get invited into this incredibly cool relationship with him where God's gonna be doing in our lives the same kinds of things he's done. And I think studying through this as a community may just help us prepare to whatever God is saying, asking us to say yes to as the Vineyard Church in the coming days. And again, so as I said, Exodus is like a central motif of scripture in the Christian life. So if you think about it, like our practice of communion, that last supper of Jesus and his disciples, it comes from the Passover. Exodus is like incredibly powerful. We see what our communion is actually meant to be like as we look at the Passover and how God provides a way of escape to anyone who would dare to trust him during those last of the 10 plagues. Our practice of baptism is this example of how God actually leads us through the water, like the Nile River, the Jordan River, like the Red Sea. God leads us through the water to actually not only cleanse us of our sin, but as we put our trust in him, he delivers us to brand new life with him. Baptism is a picture of that whole thing as well. I don't have time to highlight like all the different ways this comes up in this text, but here's one, like the basket that Moses has put in, the basket that he's put in. The, the, the word, Hebrew word, teba, is used only in two stories in the Bible. It's this story, and in the story of Noah and the flood. That's the only two places it's used. So the reader, as they're meditating and reading through this, will go, oh man, I've heard this before. This brings back Noah. In both cases, God brings about a decreation because of the evilness in the human heart as he rescues a people who will trust him. 
The connection between these two events is like amazing. Both Noah and Moses are specifically selected to forego a tragedy, kind of a watery fate in this case. Both are placed on an ark, treated and carried to safety in the very body of water that's going to bring destruction to other people. And both are vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his own purpose. Moses' passage right here doesn't just reflect backwards to the flood story, but forwards to the whole people of God going through the Red Sea. When you begin to make some of those little connections, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, God's at work. Like just arbitrary things aren't happening. He's using everything. He's orchestrating everything for his purposes. Just think about that for a second. What if there was a divine designer who could be trusted? Like what if in your life What if there was somebody who was actually at work behind the scenes whom you could place full and complete confidence in to be bringing health and healing to your life in ways you never imagined possible, allowing you to experience God's love in ways that you always dreamed of but never actually thought would happen? What if there's a designer behind it all and can be trusted? There's another repeating theme in this passage. There's a marriage, a son, a cry, and a rescue. (laughs) In the first third of the chapter, there's a marriage. There's a son that's born. There's the cries of the baby are heard by a princess whose compassion leads to a rescue. That's bookend at the very closing scene. There's another marriage. A son is born, and the cries of a whole people are heard by God whose compassion will shortly lead them to a rescue. Rather than chapters and verses, that's what the writer did to say, here's a little section. There is a designer. He is in charge. Like he can orchestrate every single part of our lives to bring about what he wants to bring about. The rub for us is sometimes we want him to bring about what we want to bring about and we want him to bring about right now, right? But what if his design is different than yours? What if, as the Old Testament prophet said, his ways are actually quite a bit higher than your ways? His thoughts quite a bit smarter than our thoughts. What if that might be true? Hmm. All right. The Hebrew storyteller is providing hints and, and things that resonate of the earlier narratives to remind us that we're in the flow of a single and connected large story and to keep us focused on whom the story is about. The story's about a God who acts consistently and characteristically throughout the generations. And so here's the big question for us. What if your story, what if your experiences, what if your life isn't actually just about you? What if all the little tiny bits of life of your story are more intimately connected to the story of God and to the story of the people of God than maybe you've ever imagined? And what if this designer can be completely trusted? Here's the deal. We often experience the events of our lives like they're somehow chaotic and out of control. Who can tell when the next heartbreaking tragedy is about to take place? And right in the middle of a world that feels totally and terribly out of control, 
Why, when you feel like you might need to take control of yourself in some kind of unhealthy way, for instance, that makes enemies out of people who don't see life from your perspective, the scriptures are shouting that there's a sovereign God whom you can trust. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that he has the ability to rule over every single part of creation. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, and he's absolutely free. He's not held back by any limitations. Think about it. God, when he gets up out of bed, he doesn't get out of bed, but if he did, he never has a bad day. He never gets up on the wrong side of the bed. Like there's nothing that holds him back. There's so many things that hold you and I back. There's nothing that holds him back. What if rather than constantly being tempted to take charge, to define our own reality, to even like accomplish God's work for him, what if we began to accept his invitation to participate right alongside him? That's the way Jesus taught us, a whole different way of being in the world. This phrase comes up over and over again that we can be in the world without being of the world. We're invited into a whole different way of life. It's highlighted in the first couple chapters of Scripture as the people of Israel are taught to actually take a day where they don't work and they trust that God will provide. It's called a Sabbath. That is so completely countercultural to everything that was going on in their story and around them. Because if you didn't farm and you didn't harvest, you didn't eat, well, what if God could be trusted? And so there's this interesting little narrative in the first couple chapters of Genesis where every day there's stuff being kind of the, the chaos and the order are being kind of separated and God's creating this perfectly cool place. And there's a morning and then there's an evening and then that's the day and then God says it's really good. And it gets down to the highlight of creation, the crowning jewel where he makes us in creation and he says, oh, that's mighty fine. Like, that's what you can say in the mirror when you get up in the morning. Like, that's mighty fine, right? And then, and, and, then, and then there's the seventh day where there's a morning and there is no sunset in Genesis chapter two. And he says, that's a holy day. And that's a picture of this rest that God's continually inviting us into. And I highlighted that a little bit last week, but it comes up again this week. You say, Michael, where does it come up this week? When Moses goes to the well, how many daughters come out to meet him? At the end of the chapter, how many daughters come out to meet him? There's seven of them. Is it because Father Abraham had seven sons? Seven, no. no, it has nothing to do with goofy songs. The writer is saying this all reflects back to that. Moses, even in the midst of exile, we'll get to this in a second, God brings a little taste of Eden. There's a rest that he's being invited into. What if there's a whole different way for followers of Jesus to live in this world, Right? We see it in the life of Jesus when he announces and demonstrates what he calls the kingdom of God, caring for the poor, healing the sick, freeing those held captive. It's a way of life that brings what, what I read in, Gen in Revelation chapter 21 earlier during communion that just says resurrection newness, but it brings it right smack dab into the present. Listen, listen. when the people of God have gotten this wrong, what we've done is we've either retreated from culture or we fight against culture. But what if we used an approach way more like Christ, who through the incarnation enters into our culture and then lives differently, to the point of laying down his life 
for those that would consider him the enemy. What if the world as we know it actually isn't our home? As the old hymn says, we're just passing through. What if this world does not own us? What if, as Peter calls us, we actually are foreigners and exiles? And there's a whole different way that we're meant to live. And as we look forward to the day that's to come, we actually are invited to participate in it right now when the earth will be made new and recreated. It'll be redeemed and renewed and cleansed and healed as our true home. The writer of Hebrews says the exact same thing in Hebrews 11, talking about Abraham, that he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God himself. If you think about it, that's exactly how Jesus prays for them. John 17, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I'm of the world. And my prayer isn't that you take them out, but that you protect them. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of it. So sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. Just a little bit later, Christ is under arrest. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Listen, Moses shows us how to live in this reality of being in the world but not of it. The name of his firstborn son while he's in Midian it says, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, I don't belong here, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. He's showing us how to live in that, to participate in what God is doing. He was in Egypt by adoption, he was in Midian by marriage, yet he belongs to neither. I think there's something that God wants us to learn, that Moses is learning, where our senses are attuned that we can participate, like in any moment, with what God's doing in that moment. That we just become sensitive to him and we recognize, oh, he's doing something here, let's go. I don't know if you guys have read much kind of cool uh, Jesuit history. Uh, for, I don't know, about the last decade or so, I've actually learned a lot from reading some of their stuff about how to follow Jesus. And there's this one phrase that they talk about that I love, where we learn to live with one foot raised, ready to take the next step. I'm ready to go. I see that in the life of Jesus. John chapter five, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And then John records that in every chapter after that, how Jesus says, I'm only saying the things that God's telling me to say. I'm only doing the things he's telling me to do. The reason that you don't like it is because you don't like him, he tells to the Pharisees. I think Picture it for a second. What would it look like to have a whole group of people in the Twin Ports living with one foot raised, ready to participate in anything that God's doing around you in any moment? What might he do if we were just listening? How would we drive by the veteran on the street corner who says, I'm a vet, anything helps? How would we drive by that person differently? If rather than trying to protect ourselves, Brock's just saying, Lord, what are you up to right here? What's going on? And, and by the way, I don't think like an old school chick track is going to help the dude a lot, just so that you know. I think it takes something more than that. It takes personally being involved in people's lives. Who are the people around you that God has placed around you that he might be inviting you to be personally engaged in? 
with in a whole different kind of way. What would it look like for the Vineyard Church to actively engage in what God's doing, ready to respond to opportunities? It means kind of getting rid of some of our ingrained habits and prejudices and cultural preferences. We've always done it this way kind of attitudes. It means constantly being on the lookout for what he's doing, the way Christ taught us to live. Imagine being part of that community. And here's my last big point. God shows us his strength by meeting us in the depths of our despair and working those uh, circumstances for ultimate good. Coming out of chapter one, anybody here last week when we were looking at chapter one in Exodus? It's a little depressing, right? Chapter one's a little depressing when you end that. There's slavery, it's increasing. Uh, Everything that happens, it gets a little bit worse. The slavery actually is gonna increase more as we go along. It's actually gonna get worse, not better, until it gets better. It was a little depressing, children being killed. Uh, I want us to notice how God meets them. Chapter two starts, and there's a little bit of hope. There's a baby born. He meets them right in the middle of the despair and the pain. In in this chapter, it's fascinating. Pharaoh tries to abort God's plan by putting infant boys in, in the Nile River. God saves Moses through the Nile River. And he brings him to be raised in Pharaoh's household, the man who wanted him dead. And not only that, I love the humor in here. It just makes me giggle. Pharaoh's household pays Moses' mom to take care of him. That's brilliant. Like, who would have figured that out? Moses' sister, who we haven't heard from until this, probably Miriam, who later becomes a part of this whole story in a really cool way, is right there speaking up. I love the way at the very beginning of this, throughout this chapter, uh, a lot of this chapter revolves around how God is using 10 different women, God's using 10 different women to speak and to move in this passage. It starts out with a daughter, and then another daughter, and then a mother, and then the seven sisters. It's like, uh, there's something in there. I don't know what it is yet. It's gonna come up again and again about how God isn't like, has second-class citizens because of our gender. And we actually see that trajectory throughout the whole of the scriptures. I love the way that this is coming up over and over again. I think of the resurrection of Christ. Christ worked salvation for us, not despite his death, but precisely in his death. Jesus loves you not in spite of yourself, but precisely because you are who you are. It's because that he died and rose again that those who believe in him are raised to new life. To put it another way, Christ triumphed over death because he first endured it. The slavery does not dissipate quickly here. The hard stuff doesn't go away fast. And yet God's moving and working in there. And I don't know about you, but it can be really tempted as just regular human beings, when the hard things don't go away really fast, that somehow we think God fell asleep on the throne. What if he never did? What if he's actually bringing about a rescue that is way more amazing than anything you ever dreamed possible? I think that's part of what's going on with this. So, that's why the New Testament writers talk about looking at our suffering with joy. So, I don't know what you're going through, in your life personally, 
but I know that the God that we worship, the one that we were just singing songs, not just about, but to, is a sovereign God who is completely in control. He meets us right in the middle of our pain. He extends an invitation to participate with him every step of the way. And I can tell you it's totally worth it. As we're reading through the book of Exodus together, one author wrote it this way, reading this is like looking at a moving painting that you're becoming a part of. My prayer is that if we study Exodus, you'll become a part of what God's doing, not just in history, but in your life right now today and invited into the future. All right, I dialed up a whole bunch of stuff, and maybe it feels like a mismatch to you of like all these different kinds of things, but I think there's stuff that God's doing in each one of us, and so let's move into a ministry time where we pray for one another. Let's begin by, let's just stand up, and then I'm going to pray over us. The worship team's going to come up. They're going to lead us in some worship. My goal is that God would draw us into this story in ways that maybe we've always longed for, but didn't even know how it might happen. So Holy Spirit, would you come right now? Thank you for your grace and your peace. Thank you for your joy over us. Lord, as we look at the story of Moses, as we look at the story of the Exodus, as we think about his birth, the way that you are orchestrating everything, This isn't a picture of some sort of deity that kind of winds everything up and then just lets it go and watch it unfold. This is a picture of a loving creator God who is intimately involved with creation and that you know and that you see. And there are things that we look at in this chapter that resonate with us because we're actually living it right now in different parts of our lives in different ways. And so, Lord, would you meet us right here in this moment? I just invite you to just invite the presence of God. One of the things that I do is I just open up my hands, kind of palm up, and I just say, because I want my body to reflect what's going on in my mind, I want my heart to reflect that. So sometimes even before I feel it, I do it because... I want to move myself to that place where I'm open and I'm receptive to God and what he wants to do right now in my life. And so, Holy Spirit, I want to be receptive to you in this moment. I don't want my mind consumed with all the things coming up later on today. God, would you meet us right here? Holy Spirit, would you meet us, experienced presence of God. Might we encounter you? And the places where it feels like life is totally out of control and that things just keep happening that we have no control or say over in our lives individually and as a family. Lord, would you allow the truth of your sovereignty to meet us in the deepest part of our soul, that you are in charge, that you are trustworthy, 
that the way you've worked in the past is going to be similar to the ways you're working right now and in the future. That even though it feels tough from time to time, that you are moving and working and meeting us. Would you bring the reality of that home? And then there's other of us. The main thing that God's doing is he's inviting you to open, to, to lift your gaze, to extend your horizon, to participate with him in what he's doing in maybe a way that you've already thought about or a new way. He's inviting you to step into that freshly. And so, Holy Spirit, would you give us courage to say yes? Do not have to try to make things happen on our own. That's what Moses does the first time. I love the way that Moses was called to be a rescuer. The first time he did it, he created a mess. God's going to use Moses to rescue, but not Moses' way. So for some of us, we've been doing that in our own strength, in our own way, and God wants to shift that. And maybe you tried that. Maybe you find yourself lost in the sight of Midian somewhere, doing something that doesn't feel at all like what he's invited you to do. I think he wants to just encourage you and speak to you in that. One old professor said it this way. He said, um, Moses spent 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He spent 40 years of his life figuring out he was a nobody. And then he spent his last 40 years finding out what God can do with a nobody who's completely surrendered to him. Holy Spirit, would you lead us in that way? All right, uh, if you're on ministry team, why don't you make your way up here? If God's speaking out something to you, I just really encourage you, don't leave the room without getting some prayer. You can turn to somebody next to you and get some prayer. Come on up. The folks up here in the front are really well-trained. They love to pray for you. The worship team's going to lead us in worship for a little bit. Would you just interact? Would you connect with God in these moments and allow the words, not just to be words that are spoken over you, but uh, uh, some of the life that God's inviting you into? Let's get some prayer. All right. Other than that, thanks for coming to the vineyard today. It's great to be with you guys.